I'm Reed Smith. I'm Ryan Eskin. I'm Charlie Coast. I'm Asher Maxwell. I'm Gene Herman. And you're listening to 440 News discussing the reconciliation bill. But before we begin, we'll just pose a simple question. If you could make any person president of the United States right now, who would you choose? And we'll start with Asher. I would choose uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Charlie? Uh, I think I would have to choose former U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. What about you, Ryan? I'd pick Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, Reid? I would choose Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg. Gene? Uh, I would choose uh, current United States representative and former Navy SEAL Dan Crenshaw. Okay, so today we are going to be uh, debating Biden's and Democrats' $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package. Um, Biden and Democrats and Republicans have also passed a $1 trillion infrastructure package. This is largely on a bipartisan basis, and we're not going to be discussing that today because of its bipartisan appeal, and there wouldn't be much to discuss. But Biden and Democrats are also trying to pass a $3.5 trillion social spending and climate spending package on a party line vote with just Democrats. And we are going to discuss uh, that bill today. So in the bill, um, there are a lot of different provisions. I'll just run through some of them. So first, there's an expansion of essentially uh, assistance with child care. There is an expansion of paid family leave of making uh, pre-K free for three-year-olds and four-year-olds, free community college for the first two years. They're going to make the child tax credit permanent, which is a monthly payment that um, a monthly payment that parents get for the children that they have. Um, they're going to expand summer lunches for uh, low-income students, and uh, they're also going to invest a lot of money in the healthcare aspect of that. So things that they're going to do in the healthcare realm, they're going to expand Medicaid to cover dental, vision, and hearing services. They are going to allow. Medicare to negotiate drug prices, which is essentially going to allow people on Medicare to pay less for drug prices. They're going to expand long-term care for seniors and those with disabilities, and they're going to expand Medicaid in the 12 states that haven't done so. They will also uh, extend subsidies for the Affordable Care Act, which will hopefully lower the price of health care. They are also going to invest more in affordable housing, and they will have some climate provisions, which we are going to debate in a second. But now we will mainly discuss the economy. Uh, they're planning on paying for all this with taxes on corporations and the rich. So now that I've run through that very long list of what is in the package, we are going to discuss its effects on the economy. Um, I personally am very excited as a progressive uh, of seeing this reconciliation package. I think it's going to be a boom for the economy. I also think that the services it's going to provide, both the healthcare and childcare aspects, are things that the government should provide and is obligated to provide in an economy as rich as we are. So the best thing about this package, I think, is the effect it's going to have on economic inequality. Um, basically, since since of the 80s and the presidency of Reagan, economic inequality has gotten a lot worse in this country. And that just means that the wealthy have gotten wealthier, the rich have gotten richer, and the poor have gotten uh, poorer, or at least have not gotten uh, wealthier at the same rate the wealthy has. Um, since the 80s, the wealth gap has doubled. 
which is very troubling, and it shows that the economy is really not lifting all boats. Um, and what this bill does is it taxes the rich and instead uses and it uses that money to pay for services for middle and uh, low income families to make their lives easier, which is a good thing for the economy. Uh, now we'll go to Charlie to hear his thing. Uh, so I think that this reconciliation bill is potentially disastrous for an economy that's already gone through a lot of disaster with COVID. The U.S. debt is currently at around two point or $28.7 trillion, and it's growing at a fast rate. And this reconciliation bill gives no regard for, for this rising inflation, gives no regard to massive debt, and also it doesn't take into account the inevitability of future economic crises like COVID. Uh, so rather, I think that this uh, rec infrastructure and reconciliation bill should purely more focus on infrastructure, because frankly, we need to improve our infrastructure, we need to improve our roads that are crumbling, that are uh, having massive impacts through, uh, especially like with Ida, with Hurricane Ida, we had massive impacts with that. And so rather, I think that the more social priorities of the bill, as Asher was saying, like child uh, care and stuff like that should rather be passed on an issue by issue basis by the Senate and House later on. Uh, so I'll take it up next. Um, ultimately, I think the bill, while a good thing, isn't going far enough. As Asher pointed out, that like there's a massive amount of inequality. 50% of Americans control 1.2% of the wealth, uh, which just shows the horrible disparities that currently exist. My issues with the bill are rather that it doesn't go far enough on those resolutions. Uh, so things like, obviously, child care expansion helps still doing a lot of the things. Community college is good, but I think we need to go further making you know, more college more affordable, uh, more corporate tax hikes. For instance, Biden's corporate tax hikes aren't even returning them to pre-Trump levels. You know, back in the day, like, well, you, you know, in the 20s, there was like a 91% tax on the highest earners. Today, it's so much lower. We need to raise those kind of things to help correct the current problems that exist. One of the things I am optimistic about this bill is, as Asher pointed out, since Reagan, like a lot of policies have destroyed the American worker and hurt like those kind of people. And certain provisions that are coming from a different act, the uh, PROS Act, that might have the ability to help labor unions is something that I'm very excited about in terms of bringing back, you know, bargaining power and putting, forcing management to negotiate from the table. Um, I'll go next. Um, I think I have a little bit of a different perspective than Asher and Ryan, although I think we, all three of us agree that the bill is a good thing. Um, I think in normal times, um, this bill might be going a bit too far with the effects it would have with increasing the national debt. I think it's just a little too expensive. However, with uh, COVID-19, I think the inequality has just risen so much. You know, uh, billionaire wealth has increased over one and a half trillion dollars since the start of the pandemic. And I think that this bill is just justified based on that premise. Uh, I really have to agree with Charlie for the most part. I think certain parts of the infrastructure bill are good and necessary. Like summer lunches are a good thing because we don't want kids starving during the summer. But I think it has too much unnecessary spending that leads to inflation and additional debt that is just going to keep piling up. Uh, all of that's going to quell economic inequality in the short term, but it's going to make it much worse in the long run. Uh, I also think the federal government handling infrastructure hurts the economy because it can't apply specific state needs in the infrastructure because it's just a broad uh, 
bill instead of uh, specific state actions. So now we'll move to open discussion. Um, I can start. Gene, you referred to parts of the bill as unnecessary spending. So I guess I'm curious what part of the bill you think is unnecessary spending. Yeah, so it's hard to define exactly which provisions are actually in the bill, but I think um, a lot of it is just stuff that isn't actually going to help the economy that much in the long term. So I think a free community college, not everyone needs to go to community college to get a job to help the economy. I think uh, free pre-K it is probably not necessary, especially considering uh, the way that our economy functions. And I think all that doesn't actually help the economy grow and help it uh, sustain itself. So I guess I have two responses to that. Uh, first of all, I think what Gene started with is actually pretty interesting. He said that you couldn't really name a specific policy that he thought was unnecessary spending. And I think this reflects a broader problem with a lot of conservative economic critiques is that they always want to say that the government is spending too much, but they never want to say what they're spending too much on because they don't want to talk about, you know, why they don't want people to be able to put their kids in daycare. And they don't want to talk about why students don't deserve at least two years of community college. Now, those are the two different things that Gene isolated. And I guess I can explain pretty quickly why those are good for the economy. So first with pre-K is that when you allow parents to put their children into pre-K when they're three years old and four years old, you free up those parents to go and uh, join the workforce, which would um, obviously help improve our economy and help um, uh, you know, improve the, the standard of living uh, for a lot of parents who no longer have to worry about that or bringing their their, uh, their child into work. It also uh, would improve educational uh, attainment because studies have shown that children who go to pre-K often do better in the long term. Now, the second thing about community college, I mean, Gene is right. Not everyone needs to go to community college, but the bill would only make two years of community college free. And a lot of that is going to be good for the economy because it's going to increase the educational attainment of our workforce, which the basic economic states would improve our, uh, you know, training position, our competitiveness, and the economy as a whole. Yeah, so kind of to build on that, for especially in terms of the college issue, Gene's like, I, I, fun, I think one thing is like a moral argument here about education. I just like think there's definitely a moral reason to make sure people are educated, and I think that's something that needs to be accounted for. But also, like, your point about not everybody going to college and sort of the issues with that, like, when we talk about wages, we need to understand that the only people whose wages are growing are the college-educated people. Real wages for uh, non-college-educated people and even community college-educated people are either stagnant or have declined because of, uh, like, inflation. Uh, and understanding these kind of wage growth in real terms means that we need to understand how education has become super necessary in order to get high-paying jobs, especially as the United States is deindustrialized and labor movements have been destroyed. Yeah, I guess I'll respond to that. First off is that Asher said that like the problem is that we don't want to talk about specific uh, provisions. I think the problem is that the reconciliation bill doesn't have specific provisions out right now, which is why there's nothing to talk about because it's all based on speculation. I think the pre-K part of that, uh, parents can still put their kids in pre-K. They would just have to spend money on it, which would overall help the economy. Well, some of them can't afford it. And I think like helping those parents with the child tax credit, stuff like that definitely is a good thing because you don't make them pay taxes. But I think like just the government paying for it, broadly putting free pre-K doesn't help the economy because it doesn't have that money circulating throughout the economy. So I have one question for you. So every year NDA is passed, NDAA, so National Defense Authorization Act, huge military spending. These things are full of blank check provisions that 
how do you feel about those kind of bills? And why should we, why do you, and conservatives generally, talk about not spending things on domestic, like school, but allow blank check, like military ballooning to continue to happen? Oh, yeah, I, I definitely don't support that. I, uh, don't, I don't support that. I don't support a lot of uh, corporate bailouts that a lot of conservatives do support, because I think that those definitely aren't things that the federal government should be getting involved in. Uh, I also think uh, Ryan isolated a moral reason for people to go to college. And I don't think there should be a moral reason that people need to go to community college if it's not going to help them in uh, getting a job. I think like more pre-K. Oh, well, sure. Uh, Pre-K for morals? Yeah. Do you think there's like a moral reason to make your children are educated? Like young three and four year olds? Yeah, I think that's why like, I think that's why we have like public schools. Yeah, but we don't have that for three um, olds. I can jump in here. I can actually make the case for why I think there's moral or somewhat of a moral obligation to provide community college. I think that our like the way we frame our development of policy is so obsessed with what is going to boost growth and productivity. When you think about a lot more of the human consequences of our our policies, and I think that whether or not it becomes beneficial to your life in the workforce, it's still a moral good to educate people because with education comes a, a, you know, a broader improvement in the standard of living. And I think yeah. that a lot of people are benefited from a good quality education, even if it, even if it's, you know, reading literature and being exposed to different ideas, different cultures and languages, et cetera, that education provides, which we, we know we won't probably ever use in the workforce. It's still a moral good. Yeah. That goes back to the real wage issues about college I don't think I don't think going to community college is necessary to be engaged with other cultures, to be engaged with other ideas. Like, I don't think you have to go to college to get those. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're not saying the government's going to mandate people to go to college. It's just people who would normally go to community college aren't prohibited based on any financial barriers. And also, 25 states already have free, like Tennessee. You can go there two years, basically for free. Like. It's not a fundamental change in the way it's happening. It's just making sure everybody nationwide can do it. Yeah, sure. And I think, like, state governments doing stuff like that, I mean... So why are you okay with states doing things that well, the government not? Well, first off, like, I don't think states should be doing that. But if states are doing that, I think that it's, like, better for states to do that than the federal government because it's much more involved in what the specific state needs because not every single state needs to have free community college. Why not? Like, what's the difference between Montana and New York in terms of people being educated? Because in Montana, they aren't, like, going to community college to learn about the things that they're going to need in Montana. Like, So, do you not think ag programs exist? Like, you need to have, like, there's vocational training programs that need why to don't be you def- why don't, right? Ryan, why don't you define that for... Oh, yeah. So, like, most colleges have some sort of vocational and, like, agricultural, like, obviously, like, a big school like Texas A&M. A&M is about, you know, agricultural development, things like that which is like obviously necessary for a lot of people who are trying to work in more rural jobs, especially in a world where that's like the only opportunity they have. Well, I mean, I think that just from a common sense perspective, it just, it helped uh, our society is going to be more advanced when more people are educated. And I think that's a worthy investment for government to make. Well, I think, like when more people are educated, it causes much more workforce crowd out. So there's much less opportunities for uh, people who do get education to uh, get involved, which means that people who go to school don't gain the benefits of going to that school because everyone has that knowledge, which means that it doesn't actually help them in the long term. But also to kind of go back to Ryan's point, do we have to have this at a federal level? Why can't we just do it at state level? Because like, I think you, you mentioned stuff about like ag, ag schools and you look at 
states like Rhode Island or Alaska who are on the lower side of agricultural production in the U.S., do they need the same like level of investment in, in a community college that focuses on agriculture as a state? Well, that's why California? if you look at like pretty much any infrastructure or federal government budget bill, it will almost always, through these provisions, not be done universally, but either through grants given to the state or through an agency that will manage these states' issues. Okay, so to wrap up the issue, I want to make one more point, which is that a lot of this, like, is education an inherent good or is it just a means to improve economic productivity is very hypothetical. But there was a study done in the and published in the Annual Review of Public Health that actually studied this and said that higher educational attainment uh, leads to healthier and longer lives. And so it's not just something, you know, uh, a question of like, well, is it good for the economy? It is just good for humanity in general and good for the American citizenry. Um, now we are going to move on to another issue in regards to this. So a lot of a lot of the criticism behind the bill and behind the spending of the bill is that it's going to uh, lead to inflationary pressures in an already inflationary economy. So we are going to go ahead and start on that. Would anybody like to introduce uh, the inflation issue? So I'll start with the inflation issue here, and I'll kind of give general background and then my kind of opinions on this. So as you know, you spend into the economy, especially when governments are spending either by taxing away from people who hoard their wealth or, uh, which is kind of a political way to say that, but um, people who like control, hold on to their wealth, hoard it, or just like spending deficit running, which is effectively what this is doing in mostly. Uh, it causes inflation to the economy, meaning the value of the dollar is less, which can de decrease the buying power of the consumer and hurt wages. So in my view of this, there's a couple things. One, like I think the way in which we mainly view inflation isn't good. I think we need to recognize it through the lens of how economic growth, and there's a lot of great theory, theorists working on this through monetary money, money, monetary money theory. Modern <laughs> monetary theory. Uh, sorry, Asher, thank you. Um, <laughs> modern monetary theory, which uh, it basically says that as long as we're spending under the um, ability for our economy to become more productive, it's okay, which during COVID was partially proven when we crapped, when we passed our GDP through in deficit, which has been something that has been considered would cause collapse for decades. Another thing that's worth noting is that if we were to raise corporate tax rates back to 1950, when they were 50% effectively, we would be paying the $2 trillion. Even if we went back to, to about 2007, you'd be at about $160 more billion going into the economy. So understanding how taxes have been just decreased means that things like inflation have been allowed to happen by Republicans destroying the way in which the economy operates. Yeah, so I'll start off here. The inflation, I think unemployment right now may be cut down because of the because of the uh, reconciliation bill, uh, because it creates jobs. But in the long term, firms are going to be forced out of the market. They're no, no longer going to be able to employ people, which leads to more unemployment later on. Uh, who do you think is going to get put out of the jobs? The lower class, which ultimately hurts the uh, lower class and causes more economic inequality in the long term than right now. And I think debt, spent in modern monetary theory that says we should spend money as long as it's uh, employing people, I think is a terrible way to assess uh, the economic value of our the economic value of our actions because the cost of debt is going to have to be paid is going to have to be paid off whether we have full employment or whether we have uh, a certain level of employment. And we should work on preventing that debt from rising as much as we can. So, uh, yeah, that discussion of debt, um, there's been a lot of uh, new research done by 
as Ryan mentioned, modern monetary theorists who kind of re-theorize the relationship between the government and debt. And Gene kind of implied there that the government will eventually have to pay back its debt. And that is kind of coming from a flawed assumption because it, it treats uh, governments like businesses in the sense that government businesses take on debt and they have to pay it back through interest on loans. But the way that a government works, especially a federal government that, that prints its own money, is that they like don't owe anybody the money that they've borrowed because they've just printed more of it. And so they we don't at no point will we actually have to pay back all the debt. We just have to worry about the, the concerns with spending too much money and then that leading to inflation. So like I don't think debt is bad just because we'll have to pay it back at some point. Debt is bad insofar as it causes inflation. And I, I think in this instance, that's not a huge problem, especially because the bill is going to be paid for. Just to respond to their claim to modern monetary theory, in 2019, a survey of the leading economists of the world was done by UChicago, and they they had a unanimous rejection of the assertions uh, listed in modern monetary theory. Yeah, so just to throw, I'll just respond to that really fast and throw it back to Asher to transition us. One thing that's worth noting, UChicago is like, the birthplace of Austrian school economics, which is like the far right. It's not really the birthplace, but it helped popularize it. Super conservative economics, which should be how you view like any U Chicago study. Uh, and on top of that, like, yeah, it's a new theory that's being introduced. Keynesian economics were also radical when, F- when FDR started introducing them to the United States. And they ultimately were pretty, pretty successful in terms of stabilizing the country. Okay, now we'll move on to our last topic of discussion on the issue of reconciliation in the economy. Uh, Charlie, you brought up in your uh, introductory statement that you thought that the reconciliation bill could, should be split up and passed in multiple different packages. Could you explain why you think that's necessary a little more? Uh, so primarily why I think it's necessary is that it could be politically disastrous uh, for the Democrats. And that's mainly taking into account what happened in 1994 uh, with Bill Clinton and that complete defeat in the ele- mid- midterm elections. Also, it happened again in 2010 uh, in Obama's first midterm uh, when the party completely lost control of Congress. And this is mainly because what happens when you pass, when you kind of ram through a lot of social priorities or even just other priorities in a big bill, that can seem like government overreach uh, to some people. And I think also we should be able to debate a lot of these social spending priorities on the merits of themselves. Like as Gene was saying earlier, we don't even really know what's going to be in this bill because there's just so much stuff. But if so, how are the senators going to be able to debate this and really weigh like what do we actually need to spend money on? And I think a lot of these social priorities may in fact be good things. Some of them may be needed to help uh, the people and help our economy. But I think we really have to be able to look at it. And this is also what Manchin was saying when he wanted to press pause on this, that we have to look at this and really analyze what do we need, what do we not need, what is best for our economy, what is best for the nation, and how do we really solve problems instead of potentially creating more problems in the future through just ramming this through and trying to get this political credit that might ultimately turn against the Democratic Party. So respond to what Charlie's saying, like, I think he has a point in terms of making debates on each issue, if the way Congress acted was in sort of this unanimous, like, equal way of understanding how debates should operate, but that's just fundamentally ignoring the realities within Congress. Corporations spend over $3.5 billion lobbying Congress, which obviously has a lot more influence than, like, small groups and individuals who are arguing for, like, useful things. So, like, 
a lot of issues within this would be like, you know, social spending, things like this. So an example of how like social spending and different kinds of packages have been fought against when like the Taft-Hartley Act was passed, it banned unions from being able to like lobby directly to Congress, which gave corporations an inroad to help destroy the union systems. Things like that continue to happen by breaking them up into smaller packages means corporations can like do things and lobby to slow down bills because it can take just one senator to really slow something down. And knowing that they're going to do that is something that helps by putting everything into a big package. Basically, blitzkriegs them and makes it so they it, they have to sort of pick particular issues or you know argue it in sort of that way. While like you know progressives can sort of make more grassroots efforts to just a larger thing by creating building broader coalitions. Beyond just hurting the Democratic Party, I, I think the addition of all of those different provisions just encourages reckless spending because it doesn't allow us to take each provision into account on how much it's actually going to help the economy, how much it's actually going to alleviate economic inequality, and what it costs uh, our country. Uh, beyond Congress's understanding of what's in the bill, the public's not going to know uh, which specific provisions are working. And if the infrastructure bill turns, if the reconciliation bill turns out to be a massive failure, they're just going to blame the whole bill and not specific provisions, uh, which hurts them. And I also think it, th- it hurts our ability to combat economic inequality uh, because we don't know exactly what is going to help alleviate that inequality. So in response to that, um, I'll mention two things. First of all, is that there are real political limitations on the Democrats, and that's the reason they're shoving it all into one package. Uh, those two limitations are, um, first of all, they can only pass so many reconciliation bills, and reconciliation bills lowers the number of votes they need to get, which makes it easier for them to pass. So they literally could not pass each of these uh, provisions without the support of Republicans, which we know they will not, which Republicans will not provide. The second, um, well, the other issue with political uh, realities is that it's just harder to pass lots of bills uh, separately than to just get everyone happy with one part of the bill and get them to all pass it together. The second reason, uh, or the, the, my other response is that these provisions have absolutely been taken into account. They've been de- de- debated for uh, years in different think tanks and different academics, and the Democrats are, are not just assembling these different ideas from nowhere, they're just they're taking their, these ideas from different studies and uh, different um, like think tank uh, debates that have all kind of determined the importance of these different policies. Uh, yeah, I think doing it individually would actually make it less likely to need reconciliation on each of those issues, because when uh, Democrats shove all of those issues into one bill, it makes Republicans let, much less receptive to each of those issues and m- definitely against it in the like in its entirety. But certain provisions in the bill would definitely be supported by Republicans. But Republicans aren't willing to do that if it's accompanied with tons of other provisions, which means that they have to pass it through reconciliation now. And as you're with your thing as well, the Democrats don't even have the full support of their party in the Senate. They're lacking uh, Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kristen Sinema right now. So if they don't get them, the Democrats are going to be left with no bill at all. And that is not exactly what they want or need. That's, that is a very unfortunate circumstance, and I absolutely believe that Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin should support the uh, reconciliation bill. Um, however, at the end of the day, I think it's going to be easier to get Manchin and Cinema on one bill than to try and get 10 Republicans on a ton of tiny bills. Yeah, I agree with Asher. I think um, it's not possible at all to pass these provisions individually with Republicans. That, that's just not feasible. I think the only way is through reconciliation. And um, look, the American public elected 
President, President Biden, and this is what they elected him to do, and this is his only chance to do it. Uh, they elected Congress, they elected a majority, and this is what is going to happen, and this is the most possible way that it's going to happen. Yes. Uh, yeah, so sort of to build on to read, and then you can probably have a response to both of us. I think there's two things to point out here. One is that I think that Charlie and Gene here are sort of ignoring two realities of the Senate. One, just corp- and something I brought up earlier, corporations, just the influence that their lobbyists have, like since the 1970s, have been growing and growing. It's showing how effective this sort of tactics are and make it, and being able to destroy things. All it takes is one senator really to hold up things. So them just putting a ton of money under particular Republican like um, senators, and also even like people like Manchin, like getting corporations like you know the oil industry, or you know especially like religious schools would probably want to, you know, try and pay Republicans to not pass universal child care. A lot of things like that means that there will be a huge push, which will just completely slow down the ability to push through the docket. The second thing is the Democrat, the way in which the Senate is like set up, it's undemocratic because of the requirement of sixty votes. It's not a majority of the population. It's a like representation of sort of this broader will and building, which doesn't actually happen. What happens is it forces right, like things to get watered down against the will of the people, or just completely kills things against the will of the people because of these sixty vote requirements. Leaving budget reconciliation means that you ultimately make a population unba- unbalanced already because like forty million more Democrats are represented by the fifty uh, senators. Then um, like pushing that to sixty makes that issue even worse. So then kind of going back to Reed and even like Ryan's point, we elected a divided Senate. We have 50-50. And I think that really, sh- I, I was optimistic when that happened. I was like, maybe we could have more bipartisanship and actually pass stuff. But obviously that's not the case. We've had a lot of party line votes. We've had a lot of tiebreakers uh, by the vice president. So I think why should we ram stuff through and have something in all in one package if we have this divided center. One thing I want to point out is that I don't really see the inherent good of bipartisanship. I don't really understand why it's good. It's like something that we should prioritize to always have buy-in from both parties. I frankly think it leads to inaction and leads to a lot of the problems we're seeing today. The reason that we haven't had action on climate change, action on economic inequality, and action on all these other problems that we're facing is because the Senate and our institutions and our um, and our like the people who run the country are so focused on trying to get buy-in from both parties. When what I think should actually happen is that one party, when they get full control of Washington, should be able to pass their prioritized priorities. And if the, it turns out to be a failure, then the people will elect the next party in the next election, which is going to lead to better policies in the long run because the voters are actually being able to adapt and see which party's policies are best. Jumping on top of what Asher has just said, and going back to a point I made earlier, the fact that like you're saying this sort of divided government thing, in some capacity that's definitely true, but you're ignoring, like obviously our institutions are built in a way that has like population representation, but even with that, like just per person's opinions, 40 million more people are represented by 50 senators that are Democratic and supporting this legislation. Yeah, I agree with Ryan. I think all of this is evident of the flaws within our legislative process. Now we'll be discussing the second aspect of the reconciliation bill, which is its provisions that attempt to address the climate crisis. There are uh, essentially three provisions for this. The first is the clean energy standard, which finds utilities that aren't making progress towards uh, using clean energy and 
financially rewards company, uh, utilities that are moving to clean energy. The second aspect is the tax breaks for uh, for renewable energy for the renewable energy industry and uh, funds for new technology research in the renewable energy industry, which essentially to facilitate that transition. And the third aspect is a uh, import fee or tariff on countries with bad standards for both carbon and methane, which are two different greenhouse gases. So now we're going to move on to basically get everyone's opinion. I can go first. Um, I think this is a, a great way to try to address the climate crisis. Obviously, this is probably not going to be enough to address the uh, the worst aspects of the climate crisis, but it is a very good start. It might be the best we can get under the reconciliation framework. Um, I think that it will help facilitate uh, a transition from the grid uh, to, well, it, a lot of different studies have come out and said that it's going to transition the grid to about 80% renewable energy by 2030, which is a really great position to be in. Uh, it's going to put us on track to meet our climate targets that we've laid out in Paris. And that is very important because there's about to be a new uh, climate conference with the United Nations at Glasgow. And if we have passed this reconciliation bill, we can signal to the world that we are being serious about climate that might lead to other countries adopting better climate policies. Um, so yeah, uh, Charlie. Uh, so first off, I think indeed we do need uh, good climate policies and we need to find possible solutions to climate change because the, the harsh reality is it's something that is facing us and just like this week and this past month, we've seen a lot of disasters uh, from New York to here even in Tennessee. It's been a disastrous time. I, however, think that in the $1 trillion uh, infrastructure bill that was passed bipartisanly, that does a very good job of addressing a lot of uh, concerns with climate change and offers some potential solutions to really fix some of the problems and, and really uh, cause more or create more resilience in the communities that are affected by these disasters. All right, right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm going to kind of come at similar to Asher, but different. And I think he's right that probably under the reconciliation framework, it's the best we're going to get. But I have a ton of problems with this. I think it primarily operates through trying to work with businesses in, in order to get things done, which I think is the wrong way to do this. Like, Ultimately, corporations are what's doing a lot of this emission, trying to violate standards, and we need to like understand that and kind of fight against them on this issue. Uh, and in addition to that, <laughs> um, uh, like for instance, tax credits, effectively, very frequently, and if you look at places like California where they've instituted a lot of credit systems, especially with the zero emission vehicles uh, credits they have, a company like Tesla comes in, creates, does things like sell, and then sells those to other companies so that those companies get the tax credits. Um, and that effectively makes it so like companies don't have to end up producing and they'll end up doing the bare minimum and finding loopholes in order to get these tax credits, um, which allows them to then not really focus on going beyond them because they don't have a real incentive to, because it's still something that's instead of trying to challenge the corporate structure of America, it's working with it in order to like try and maintain sort of status quo climate issues. Okay. Um, I agree with Asher, but I disagree with Ryan. I, I think. This is extremely necessary. Uh, I think there is a cost with the reconciliation bill, um, but I think it's substantially outweighed by the need for action on climate change. Um, I think it's the number one problem facing our country right now. And uh, I'd just like to cite a report from the Rhodium Group in March. It found that 10 years of tax incentives um, for new zero emission, zero emission electricity generation like those included in the Clean Energy Act for America um, 
would transform the power sector. In fact, it said that uh, it would cut air pollution by up to 84% in just five years, cut carbon dioxide to 76% below 76% below 2005 levels in just under a decade. And um, this set of power sector investments would actually double the share of clean electricity um, generation at the end of the decade from as little as 34% to as much as 69%. And this would just flood, it would flood the economy with abundant, affordable, clean electricity. Uh, this would create jobs, uh, jumpstart the achievement of a clean energy uh, future for America. And I, I just think this is the way to go. And it, it all begins in the um, reconciliation bill. Yeah, I think I agree with Charlie on this mostly. I, while I agree, while I disagree that uh, we should avoid death because I don't think that's what climate change is going to cause death for all people. I think it just exacerbates inequalities. I think the reconciliation bill largely stifles private innovation. I think subsidizing a certain industry destroys innovation within uh, the country that's subsidizing that industry. Uh, I think oil subsidies broadly should be cut, though. If green energy is actually better, the markets should decide that. The problem now has come out of the U.S. subsidizing fossil fuels for decades, and subsidizing another industry is not the answer to solve that problem. So, yeah. So, Gene, you talk about um, the government inhibiting uh, innovation in the private sector on climate. Uh, what, what evidence is there that the government helping and working with those, these businesses actually inhibits their innovation? Well, I think the government regulating how companies are able to use uh, their energy or stuff like that prevents them from having the necessary funds for them to explore other options, especially considering the fact that I don't think that uh, attempting to slash emissions is actually going to solve. I think that uh, creating new innovative technologies is going to be key to uh, sequester carbon, to uh, prevent the worst effects of climate change. Um, I would like to respond to something that Brian brought up, and though we are both, uh, I guess you could say, to the left, that's a pretty fair assessment there. This is something this is something Ryan and I actually disagree. So Ryan, uh, you know, basically said that he doesn't tr- he doesn't think we should give tax breaks to businesses. We should work with businesses to address climate change, and I think that's almost a naive uh, position to take because it it assumes that we really have the option. You know, the best reports that we have say that. If we don't address climate change very soon and very quickly, it's going to be catastrophic. And I don't think we have the luxury of, of waiting around for some sort of uh, grand shift in the economic structures. Rather, we should try to work within those structures to, 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 to move on to a more renewable energy-based economy. And I don't really understand why uh, incentivizing that market shift is, is going to somehow reinforce those structures. And to the extent that it is, I think it's more important to address climate change. Yeah, so I'm going to kind of respond to all three of the people who spoke kind of at once here. So just to begin at the beginning with the study that like Reed brought up, it's from a group called the Rhodium Group, uh, which to like give a little bit of criticism that it's funded by Tom Steyer, who is a billionaire. So obviously has a pretty big interest in protecting like corporate tax cuts uh, through, through like Gene. He's right that like we're subsidizing oil through this, which is another reason I think it's bad and sort of engage in an example of why engaging with corporations is not the effective way to do this. Because what it leads to is things like more subsidies to oil or tax cuts that allow companies to continue to just work on the margins of still things this instead of working in programs that actually understand how like the modern systems of like, quote unquote, like innovative capital have allowed for like effectively sort of developments that don't actually resolve climate change. They sort of skirt on the margins or might only protect the wealthiest part. 
Instead, I think our government needs to start taking stances like really pushing to ban fracking, which is something that as opposed to doing that, we're helping fund or willing to like threaten mining companies and bringing back the idea of like taking control of industry and really regulating it down to like fundamentally challenge these sort of systems. And I think you're right to some extent really fast, just that like tax credits have some use. And I think, you know, effectively this might help in some capacities as well. Uh, and I, but I fundamentally just don't think climate change is a horrible issue that's keeping getting worse. We've passed a lot of tipping points, like pretty clearly, according to like, you know, the UN and sort of the studies that they're putting out. So only like, I think you're being naive and saying that not doing radical shifts and trying to at least challenge mainstream corporate paradigms is something that needs to like be ignored in favor of working with them. Uh, okay. Well, regarding the credibility of the Rhodium Group, uh, Tom Steyer, I'll just say correlation does not equal causation. And um, I think me and Asher, uh, Asher and I see pretty eye to eye on this issue. Uh, we think, I mean, I think uh, this is a perfect example of when big government is necessary to work with uh, businesses and help invest in our economy to solve a huge issue that is facing our planet. I agree that big government is necessary. I think the issue is you guys aren't understanding the extent of how big a government we need to like utilize, right? So historically, looking at people like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know, FDR um, and Truman, they have routinely used things like threats to nationalize industries in order to force, you know, concessions out of people. And sure, the Supreme Court's like a major issue to this. And that's a whole other topic. But understanding how, like, threatening certain industries with, like, harsher punishments, creating things that actually cap emissions. So and like basically challenging these sort of existing structures is sort of historically what's been unnecessary to resolve a lot of the issues at times of hiding crisis within our country. I mean, do you, um, do you suggest we rewrite the Constitution? No, that's not what I was saying. I was saying that, like, so at different times, like, there have been different constitutional beliefs in terms of, like, are you, are, in terms of, like, nationalization, is that your issue? Yes. Yeah, so, like, I don't think that's necessarily inherently unconstitutional. Uh, not every, like, conservative justices have struck against that, but not every liberal justice has gone against that kind of idea. And I'm not saying you also have to do it, but I think a credible threat is obviously a useful tactic that's been used historically. Um, yeah, that's like the main thing. Um, well, actually, hearing that the Ryan rearticulate his position, I, I think we largely agree. I agree uh, with Ryan that like these the tax breaks are not going to go far enough, and that they are um, not the best strategy to tackle climate change, especially with how deep the hole we've dug. Uh, and rather, we should go for more aggressive climate measures like banning fracking. Uh, maybe I would disagree with how far Ryan wants to go. I don't know if I support the nationalization of industry, but I certainly do support, uh, you know, pretty pretty serious regulation that really acknowledges the threat that we face. And uh, I, I may, but I do see that you know the measures that are in the reconciliation bill might be the best chance we have and the best um, measures that we can get passed in in Congress to address uh, climate change. Agreed. Yeah, I just want to quickly clarify. Um, I, I think the reconciliation bill is a huge step in the right direction and a necessary step. It is by far not the end. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, different studies have agreed that they've all pretty much uh, said that we need we need really drastic changes. But I think that, you know, taking the first step here with this reconciliation bill can help make it easier down the road to, to do more because it's going to help get other countries involved. And, uh, you know, just the first step. And one point I'll make about this is why it needs to go in the reconciliation bill. And maybe this will bring some of our more conservative uh, members of this po- podcast into this conversation is I think the GOP is not living in reality right now in regards to climate and um, you know a loss in 
the upcoming midterm elections could drastically delay the process of fighting climate change. And that is a huge issue, um, which is why this is a very urgent matter. It needs to be handled in the reconciliation bill because there could not be an, there could not be an opportunity to fight something like this uh, for a very long time. Yeah, so sort of on that, you say Republicans are living in reality. I don't think Democrats are either. Like, I think we need to understand how bad climate change is. And like I said, like, according to, like, the, you know, I, the UN, we're passing a lot of these tipping points. And we need to understand that to avoid this, you know, we're not even getting to the point of having a Green New Deal. There's not, there's not the spending required to actually resolve these issues because Biden is operating through traditional, like, austere paradigms. And even though he's sort of rejecting those through a broader infrastructure spending, it's not far enough. We need to spend more. It requires us to actually fundamentally challenge the existence of system that developed, especially under Ronald Reagan, to finally, you know, stand up and resolve a lot of the issues of climate change. It's been rapidly accelerating because of just the massive ability that corporations have. Uh, So I have to disagree with stuff that Brian and Reed have said here. I think while it might be true that some Republicans and Democrats might not be living in this climate change reality, I think we have to see that and acknowledge that there are significant Republicans like Senator Bill Cassidy of uh, Louisiana. He's really trying to rally a lot of uh, people in his party, in the Republican Party, around this infrastructure bill, because look at what happened in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida. And even like Chuck Schumer uh, with the Democrats, he's really stressing Look at the destruction in New York. Look at all this flooding. Look at the lives lost. So I think it's kind of unfair to, to really say that these parties aren't living in reality completely. So I understand uh, what you're saying. And there are admitted, admittedly um, some Republican um, politicians who uh, recognize the issue of the climate and are willing to work with Democrats to solve it. And I think that exists. But I'm talking about the GOP as a whole. It just refuses to acknowledge the issue. And I, I guess my question is, how many more people like Senator Bill Cassidy is it going to take for natural disasters to just ravage their constituents uh, to make them take action and actually get their uh, fellow politicians to rally around this issue? I think by that point, and you get enough support, it's just going to be too late. Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of this centers on a discussion of uh, divisions within the right right now, which may be a topic for a different episode, but I think like there definitely are, there definitely is Republican support for climate measures, and it's just finding the balance between that and uh, what the Democrats want to pass bipartisan legislation. There's definitely enough support for that to happen. Yeah, so I think to respond to both of that, like, and Charlie as well, like, fundamentally, I think the issue here is we're talking about bipartisan climate reconciliation, like, solving and like the infrastructure bill and sort of discussing that on being enough. But I don't think anybody is grappling with the fact that climate change is a massive impending disaster. And sure, they have said that it's going to go further and that like there'll be future legislation. Not really clear what that's going to be. But fundamentally, we need to understand that even with Republicans, their interests are going to lie with like, you know, oil, all pretty much always because of the way lobbying works. And that any bipartisan deal that they're going to agree to is not going to be enough to resolve the massive issues of climate change that are just rapidly destroying the entire planet. Um, yeah, so Ryan said that it's not going to be enough. And I think I want to like ch- kind of challenge that frame a little bit because, frankly, as of now, nothing is going to be enough. We've already experienced warming and to a certain degree, and that warming has already been incredibly disruptive. The question is, how bad is the warming? And there's no like threshold at which 
once we've had this bad of warming, it's going to be like night and day between how bad the warming is going to be. I mean, to some extent, there are tipping points that we have to worry about in, in the natural ecosystems. But I do think that every little bit of warming of, uh, of carbon reduction we can take in will mitigate warming to some extent and is in, the, in that sense beneficial. So while like I agree with Ryan, we need, to, we need a Green New Deal. We need something aggressive to take on climate change. But I still think that these efforts um, that we are getting in this reconciliation bill are going to be a huge deal. We should definitely push for them very, very aggressively. Yeah, so an interesting point Asher brought up was that it's a little bit too late for uh, solving it completely. And I completely agree with that. And I think that's why uh, private innovation in the concept of sequestration and uh, other innovations that will help solve climate change are much more effective than attempting to cut emissions when the rest of the world's going to continue polluting. And there's still going to be large amounts of emissions that are going to contribute to climate change. So sort of on that, I think a good point to be made is that Gene's really talking about like corporations trying to fix a way out of warming. I think there's two big issues with this. One, they're fundamentally going to protect themselves. So sure, where they live, you know, the kind of elite coasts of the United States will be fine. But, you know, poor communities are going to be ravaged. Global developing, you know, the South, the global South being forced into a developing state. As is not going to be able to resolve. Places like Bangladesh, Indonesia are already getting flooded while the Sahara is expanding. And just ignoring those people is not something that I think is like immoral. My second point is like, you're making points about corporate innovation. And if you look at the history of where corp- how corporates have talked about this, for instance, Chevron said they were go- they were putting billions of towards this and then and like prevent and going like carbon neutral or whatever. And then it actually turned out that they were rapidly accelerating climate. They just flat out lied. Things like that is going to continue to happen because of the way that corporate structures exist to incentivize profit making, which at the cost of the climate and the and the core people of the world. Well, first off, I'd like to disagree about the profit making because I think that sequestration would be very profitable for firms if they're able to innovate new technologies. But I also think that just targeting emissions is only going to stop the worst effects, which means that all of that inequality and all of those poor communities that are going to be hurt that Ryan's talking about are going to be hurt, are still going to be hurt even under uh, current trajectories, even under those bills. But sequestration is the only way that we're going to be able to actually uh, get some of that out of the atmosphere and uh, stop the longer term of uh, those effects of climate change. Yeah. So that sequestration thing that Gene is talking about for some context, basically it is where companies figure out ways that they can suck carbon out of the atmosphere and put it back into the earth so it's not a pollutant. Now, this is kind of like almost uh, propaganda or, uh, you know, a corporate uh, propaganda that they're trying to convince people that somehow their innovations are going to be able to adapt for their uh, pollutants and the, the harm that they've caused. But, you know, the real question, the real problem with this, with uh, trusting corporations to adjust climate change is that they have no profit incentive. What this is like, the issue of climate pollution is a negative externality in the sense that it's not really priced into their products. Businesses will not alone face the consequences of their climate, of their of bad, of their pollution. So Chevron, all these oil companies are not going to bear the brunt of the disastrous climate consequences they've caused. It's going to be everyone, and it's going to be specifically uh, communities in uh, vulnerable regions, and, which means that Exxon does not really have a unique incentive to try and develop uh, technologies to address it. And the only way we can really facilitate the kind of necessary innovations that will address the climate crisis and through sequestration is through these kind of collective means via the government. 
Uh, I mean, sequestration is not science fiction. I mean, it's working on a smaller scale already, but it's a question of how those companies develop the technologies to scale that up. And there's 100% an incentive to innovate those technologies because there's a demand for those technologies in the status quo. Yeah, so I think two things here. One, I think you're right that there is some incentive to innovate those technologies, but it's for those people to protect themselves. The billionaires, the rich people who are running these companies might develop these things and then only use them on like wealthy communities in the global West and North. So, you know, the United States might be preserved, but you know, what's going to happen to India? What's going to happen to Bangladesh? And I think that's a real moral issue that we as Americans need to recognize that we're effectively helping lead to global destruction. And two, you make a point about how climate change is past the tipping point and we need to resolve it by helping people. And I agree with you. But I think that goes back to the earlier discussion about things like economic development, where we need to engage in, you know, effectively wealth redistribution in order to ensure that people are able to live. We need to make sure that they're able to get homes as they're losing places on the coast. We need to make sure that they have new places to go to and there's enough food production that they can affordably get as climate change accelerates while our population continues to rise. I don't think a conservative or even liberal uh, economic agenda is going to be enough to resolve that issue on top of the impending crisis of climate change. Okay, well, um, Gene, I know, I know you're big on in the private sector handling uh, this issue of clean energy and uh, climate change. But it means uh, I just want to bring up a survey from the Yale Program on Climate Communication and the George Mason University Center for Climate Unica- Communication from back in January. Um, and it found that 60, 66% of voters said that developing sources of clean energy should be a high or very high priority for Congress and the president. So this is a very popular position that the federal government should be taking an active role in these uh, clean energy sources and fighting climate change. Yeah, so I guess I'll respond to what Ryan said and what Reed said, but I guess I'll go with what Ryan said first. Uh, Ryan said it's a moral question because companies only have incentive to sequester in certain areas. First off, that's just not how sequestration works because they take carbon out of the atmosphere, which prevents warming more broadly. Uh, Second off, that sequestration, since there's incentive for them to sequester that carbon, they would continue doing that, which would help bring the global climate uh, down and stop uh, that change. And Ryan said the uh, tipping point and uh, the question of tipping points and wealth redistribution being important. I think that just goes back to the earlier discussion about how uh, this bill and those types of measures don't actually help those people in the long run. And what Reed said about voters want the federal government to do this, I think, first off, yes, I think the federal government should definitely stop subsidizing oil. I think the federal government should stop intervening, intervening in the market and stop incentivizing oil companies to continue. But I also think that uh, voters would support private sector innovation if that if that innovation leads to green technologies that solve, which is uh, what Reed was talking about, uh, the voters supporting green technologies. So, yeah, I think to continue to respond to this and sort of the idea of like not helping the developing world enough. And to some point, you're right that like climate change could in some way help by things like carbon capturing systems uh, globally. But I don't think that does necessarily enough because still there'll be sort of like, you know, in 2019, even the UN said that like unprecedented impacts of climate change disproportionately burden developing countries. Uh, stuff like this means that like, even if the global North develops these things, they're not necessarily going to ensure that like the Sahara is fixed and doing things like carbon capturing won't, you know, necessarily fix a lot of those issues, like 
and issues have already happened. Like the ice sheets have started melting in places like Bangladesh. So in Bangkok and Bangladesh, the city is already flooding. There's it's going underwater. There's a lot of issues like that that we need to understand and resolve. And ultimately, a corporate-focused process won't do that because they have historically relied on extracting value from the global south to help the global north. Yeah. So first off, I think CCS would definitely help the developing world. You said it would help them some. I think that preventing climate change more broadly would definitely help the developing world because it would prevent those worst impacts of the developing world not having like any land. And you said uh, climate change is a burden to developing countries. And I completely agree with that. And I think that sequestration would be much better than trying to slash emissions because slashing emissions is not going to be able to prevent the developing world from uh, having those cities flooded. I think cities definitely are already flooding. And the problem with an emissions-minded approach is that it only focuses on what it, what a certain tipping point is, on what a certain point where it, it affects us. I think that sequestration would prevent that climate change from happening, or prevent it from happening like to a much greater extent, instead of focusing on like a two degree threshold or a three degree threshold. Uh, so I think we've gotten really deep into this kind of climate debate right now. I kind of want to pull it back to the, the reconciliation bill, just with a question for both Gene and Ryan and even Asher and Reed, if they have uh, some opinions on this, how would the one-off $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill deal with climate change? So I think to answer Charlie's question, I think both Gene and I agree that it doesn't do enough or even a whole lot for totally different reasons. Um, so I think it's good, like in some capacity, Asher and Reed are right. It's going to do some stuff that helps prevent climate change. My argument is largely that it's just fundamentally not enough to actually cause issues. Uh, to be resolved. And I think Gene is coming from this perspective that I'm totally a believer in cutting emissions and like that's my lame thing. And I don't believe that. I think we need to spread our you know resources across. Things like government funding for sequestration is something I would totally support, especially if it's like uh, you know global. Um, and you know forcing emissions cuts I think needs to happen at the same time because I think you're saying we're putting all our eggs in one basket on cutting emissions when we're already too past the tipping point. I think even though you're right, the sequestration is working on a smaller scale, like, and there's some funding for this package, and, you know, you're rejecting these premises to try and develop something totally different, and I think you're relying too hard on corporations being able to fix it through one method, when we don't really know effectively how that's going to work, and even with what this, so I think to some capacity, this infrastructure bill is better than, you know, going all in on sequestration, which kind of seems like your advocacy here. So, Ryan, if you don't want carbon reduction, you don't want sequestration. What alternative? Well, do you I have? want both, but okay. I think it needs to be done through anti-corporate structures by challenging by a combination of grassroots movements against the current like neoliberal order, combined with government top-down reform to, uh, you know, effectively you know threaten corporations through things like you know the corporate death penalty, uh, nationalization, um, and you know forcing you know harder fines, harder penalties because corporations have a tendency to just violate the environment, pay the fine, and keep doing it. That's just seen as the cost of doing business. We need to show them through strong uses of force, like, you know, threats of nationalization or huge fines that this is not okay. And, you know, we as, you know, the people of the United States need to, you know, don't support your interests as, you know, the top 1% of society. So I guess I'll respond first to Charlie's question and then to what Ryan said. I, I think the reconciliation bill will stifle that private investment in the 
sequestration and other green technologies because it artificially creates demand. And when the funding for that bill runs out, either those private firms don't have any incentive to uh, continue down that path or uh, they just don't have that incentive in the first place. So I think channeling uh, demand and the market itself is key. Uh, what Ryan said about putting all of our eggs in one basket on sequestration, I think, uh, first off, I think the fact that we're able to take carbon out of the atmosphere is a much more effective approach than trying to cut emissions. But I do think that innovating those green technologies would eventually slash emissions because of how those technologies operate, where companies wouldn't have to emit as much because they have greener technologies, which there's demand for right now. That concludes episode two of 440 Views from the Hill. Stay tuned for new episodes in the upcoming weeks. Uh, we'd like to give special thanks to Mr. Joshua Clark for sponsoring this independent study, Mr. Henry Diggins for assisting our recording progress, and Jack Keller for our theme music. Thanks for listening and see you next time.